I'm good. I'm super excited uh, that we have this opportunity to talk today. Yeah, we've been trying to arrange it for a while, so I'm happy that we finally both found the time to do this yeah. and finally got you on here. Yeah, yeah, very happy about that too. Yeah, so why don't you just start by introducing yourself and what you do? Uh, my name is Beta Vivchuk. I'm a founder and director at Unfolding Strategies, which is a consultancy and education lab for digital, diverse, and sustainable fashion in Web3. Uh, and I'm also head of impact at Dematerialize, which is an NFT fashion marketplace. So this is what I currently do. I also uh, work a little bit with uh, fashion and design education, and I'm personally a PhD at Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. Yeah, it's such a unique role you have, but also the fact that it's spread over different things. I really am interested to know how you actually got to this point and where your interest in fashion actually begun. If we take it way back and yeah, where did this, how did you get to this point in your career? Oh God, I think we need to think how way back are we going? Are we going way back? How was I a girl interested in fashion or how it professionally started forming? I do want to know, yeah, when just way, way back when it first started your interest. Way, way back. Okay, so I think I was always interested in aesthetics and culture and uh, in my family uh, culture in a way that literature, going to theater, that was very much cherished and and books were everything and so was film. And I always dreamed of working in, uh, in film industry um, and I was doing a lot of like storyboards um, as a child. But then I felt like it's maybe it's not like a, like a girl's job. So I started thinking that actually fashion editorials are like very short storyboards. You also tell a story. There's also this kind of narrative component to it. Um, and I thought, okay, maybe maybe I could do styling. And that was like my, my first, uh, I think, dream job, apart from being like a documentary uh, filmmaker that actually maybe I could be a stylist, an art director. And later it also led to being interested in trend forecasting. So I think when I was maybe, I don't know, when I was a teenager, this was something that I was very uh, interested in. So telling stories, but also observing how people are behaving and what are the societal changes and what drives them. So I would say this was like the first, first kind of uh, a step into being interested in fashion. It's interesting you say that you felt that documentaries and film wasn't a girl's job why do you feel that you felt that way I don't know I, I I ended up working when I was like 18 19 20 at the film festival and it's not like there were no uh no guests uh you know there were no like uh women who were doing film but somehow it just felt like it wasn't such an obvious choice and fashion I think had that appeal and it felt just much more easy and accessible because to produce a photo shoot is much easier as a venture in the end rather than producing um, a movie. And I think to be a filmmaker, it has this, it has a lot of grandiosity uh, and you need a lot of confidence. Maybe I didn't have at the time and and there's this temporality that comes with uh, fashion that you can just like jump into it and do it and move mm -hmm. on to the next thing. And I really discovered quite early on that I love this kind of um, element of, you know, doing something together with people quickly and seeing the outcome and like collaborating. So I think I like that. And I always, yeah. and even though film industry is very much built on people coming together, doing things, there's always a bit like an architecture, just like, you know, the director, the main persona. I don't think I was that maybe drawn towards that. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I think 
I completely get you. Like when you're younger and you're playing around with these things, like on a on the weekend, things like this, it is way more accessible to kind of play around with clothes that you already have and take photos. That's way easier than creating a film. And then mm-hmm. if you do try and do that, you obviously, you could be put off quicker as a child. So that does make sense. But what was your first job in fashion? Did you ever work in retail or did you go straight into a different Yeah, I I would say that my first ever jobs were jobs in like working with culture, working at film festivals uh, and taking care of the jury and making sure that, you know, everyone votes for the right film. So I work with quite big European film festivals in Poland, where I come from. Uh, but when I was 20, uh, I had a gap year. I studied psychology at the time, social psychology to be precise. And I had a gap year and I moved to London and I worked uh, at Uniqlo as a, as a, oh my God, this was a very long ti- title, but I was just basically a stylist for one of their newly launched flagship stores. Uh, and it was fun. It was interesting. I did it for less than a year. Uh, I was really excited because we got to work with Nicola Farmichetti, who then I thought was like, you know, the hottest stylist. And this is, this is about 2007 to, yeah, I think it's about 2007. So a while ago, I was very young. And, you know, it was my dream to to be a stylist. So here I am, moved to London and um, getting this random experience working with retail, but also being like a part of the scene and going to parties and clubs. So for me, this was like, a, I would say, very fundamental uh, year, which also led me to a conclusion that I definitely don't want to do that full time. Uh, but it was really fun and that led, led to me working, you know, as an art director and stylist for, for a couple of years. Yeah. Why didn't you want to do it full time? Oh, because it was, it was, it was exhausting. It was an exhausting job. And I quickly came to a conclusion that you need to have a lot of money from somewhere else to be able to sustain working as a stylist assistant. So, uh, yeah, very, I would say it's a, for those who made it, you know, a lot of respect. It's a, it's a very, it was a very, very intense, very competitive. And I always knew that I had this, you know, academic psychological um strike in me and I was interested in more things rather than just doing shoots and editorials for magazines yeah potentially I mean I don't know do you think that was also living in London in terms of it being exhausting and expensive or did how was it moving to London from Poland that shift oh it was a first time because I lived in London twice in my life first I moved there just for like a gap here just to work and have fun pretty much that was the that was the aim um and it was it was fantastic it was a beautiful year of my life there was uh used to used to used to really like party and dance and dress up a lot because it was a time of like i don't know boombox and parties like that uh and i lived in shortage and it was it was phenomenal and i still have a lot of friends who some of them still work in fashion industry from uh from that period uh, and it was very different. It was it was just very fun because I moved from a city that's less than a million people. That's very nice, uh, but it didn't have that energy and that flow of of people. And I think it was a very particular period also in in London that a lot of fun things were happening, like around two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, all this also stuff that we call today in this piece, the whole aesthetic that's coming back. Well, that was my you know that was my fun times. I would say, and then I and then I moved second time uh, with a more focused purpose to study at CSM in 2011, 2012. So that was a little bit different uh, because I was back in the role of a student, uh, not working and partying. 
uh, only. So yeah, so that was that was also very different. But uh, I enjoyed it both of times. Uh, now I'm based in Berlin, and yeah, this is also a kind of a different place that I would say it's a little bit slower, a little bit more accessible on many levels. Um, yeah, and I and I think it's also great. So yeah, I love my time in London, but also can see myself living there now. To be honest. Yeah, so you've lived in, obviously you've lived in London, now Berlin, you've lived in kind of fashion capitals. How have you found breaking into the creative fashion scene in a new city? How do you go about that? Is it something that's difficult or does it just naturally happen? Oh, I would say it was very natural and quite easy. I couldn't, my first job in London was working for for newly forming uh, Uniqlo as a stylist, which at that time, if you think I was, I think 19 or 20, it was almost like a dream. Um, and it was very easy because I didn't get any other job. So that was very simple. I applied for different jobs. I don't know, working, doing sales, also in stores. I didn't get any of them. I just got this one. So it came about pretty easily. And then I think it's always this element of being in the scene or kind of, you know, hanging out with the crowd and then somehow jobs uh, stem of that, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Like a natural flow. Yeah, so natural, natural flow, but also just yeah, just just through being uh, around certain places, around certain people. I would say this 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 always worked this way. Yeah, and then you said that you were craving kind of more the academic side. How did you then shift into this? Did it have to do with your degree, or did you have to go about doing something else? Well, I worked for a couple of years, both in in like art world and fashion, trying to do art direction, styling, but also doing exhibitions in galleries, in contemporary art galleries. And for some people back then, it was considered very unorthodox to be interested in those two areas at the same time. But I really didn't see that much of a difference, just different different languages and different formats. Um, and I and I really liked it, but it felt very unsustainable. It felt very uh, very counterproductive that you produce all this shoot and then it's gone. With fashion exhibitions, this is the moment when we, this was a moment when art institutions just discovered that they should do very, very good photos of shows and then they, they have life of their own online and they circulate on, you know, on different uh, website platforms or I don't know, it's a Tumblr era. Uh, so I felt it was very, uh, very exhausting. And we just do another shoot and another show and another shoot and another show. And obviously people with that kind of uh, mindset very often end up in education thinking, how can we do things differently? How can we teach the next designers, uh, the you know fashion designers, artists, curators, creative directors to do some things, you know, differently? Today we talk about the growth that we were thinking about how to also be more resourceful. Um, there is all this conversation about slowing down. Uh, I was always more interested in the why, like what's the point of it? How does it contribute to the culture? So naturally, I uh, I moved towards academia and working with young uh, students and designers. Mm. So at what stage into your career, how many years in were you when you made the shift to education? Oh, I think I started teaching, to be honest, for the first time, like 11 or 12 years ago. But... To, like to do it like very kind of consciously I think I did it eight years ago that I kind of mm. um, put most of my energy into it because I also had this so I would say that my work was always divided between this I would say create creative part and also this academic part and the creative part that was you know doing also 
a lot of things that had to do with collaborating with others and I did in the past, I don't know, perfume with designer Marlene So It was like a speculative non-existing lava perfume uh, that was supposed to smell like a volcano. And then other project I did was a 3D beauty line with artist Adasoku. And this is like all 10 years ago. What we did with Ada looked very much today, like beauty, NFT projects that we get to see all the time. Uh, so I was doing those things and then I took them basically into teaching and doing kind of speculative design. What is fashion? What is culture? What is society courses? But then also teaching uh, people what is AI? What is data? What is surveillance economy from more like social psychology perspective? Mm, so you mentioned 3D. So when was it your relationship with digital fashion began? Uh, yeah, I would say I would say my interest in digital culture and how it was in art started in probably 10 years ago because I used to I used to do exhibitions and we also worked with artists who were associated with post-internet art scene and what we're seeing now with fashion is a little bit like reviving a moment kind of culturally speaking for post-internet art 10 years ago so it was artists who were responding to art being 3D uh, making it kind of you know immaterial and what does it mean can artwork be a file can it be a JPEG? Can it be an MP3? So these are also the conversations we have now. Can fashion be, I don't know, a file of its own? And then what does it imply farther? As I would say it's about that time. Uh, and then collaborating, doing projects with 3D artists who are still, uh, till this day, very, very active. Um, and then kind of I inserted my teaching because I could see that a lot of students of mine who were interested in sustainability, or it was in sustainability programs I was teaching, uh, see digital fashion as this holy grail for sustainable uh, sustainable development and I wanted to challenge it so I added it to my courses as one of a kind of like um, like a conversation points and I think I did it first time in 2019 I was a guest professor for University of Virginia it was a program in Berlin about digital design and um, this video from Fabricant uh, with ID just came out claiming that digital fashion is inclusive and sustainable. So I took it and we started discussing it and going over it and thinking, is it really? And then through through for teaching, I became researching it. It entered my PhD in that way. And then it uh, led to my work with unfolding strategies and dematerialized. So before we go into unfolding strategies, when you say you wanted to challenge it, what was your initial view of digital fashion did you think it couldn't be sustainable or no i don't i i don't think anything is i don't think in a very binary world that something is either yes or no uh i think you know it it's there are different tools and it depends how we use them so whenever something is offered as a new kind of um um miracle i don't know how to say it like a magical potion that this will resolve all your problems and make fashion very sustainable now uh, in three seconds. Here we go. I think it's uh, very unlikely. So uh, being very familiar with uh, all the work that was being done, also on the kind of you know um, governmental institutional level, uh, I was intrigued that there's so much hope. Uh, so I was very intrigued and I wanted to get the bottom of it. So basically uh, see what it is, what is possible, what can it what can it do, but also how it can be used to perpetuate the old harmful ways of you know uh, doing fashion. So I think it can do both, and it's amazing that we can 
use it for, as we can say, for good, but it can go so other way around. So we need to be mindful of it to have a more kind of rounded uh, perspective. Yeah. And then at what point did you decide to focus on specifically digital fashion more? Because obviously you can explain what unfolding strategies is, but the dematerialized again focuses on digital fashion. So how did this become more relevant in your everyday work? Well, I think I think we're observing now a fantastic shift. I, I always say it's like an ontological shift because we started we started thinking of uh, digital assets as kind of interchangeable with objects that are material and physical around us. So if I if I'm now thinking about a dress, uh, there is a percentage of society that already thinks about buying a virtual or digital dress. So the fact that we kind of uh, add to our fashion vocabulary vocabulary digital garments, it's it's very interesting moment. And I lived through. Uh, last 10 years were all the discussions about sustainability in fashion uh, and I think we are kind of seeing a very similar moment uh, now with digitization in general and by digitization I mean not only digital clothes but you know how new technologies such as AR, AI, blockchain are entering fashion industry. So I really uh, felt that I would like to join this conversation from within not only as a part of education not only as a commentator not maybe as a offering like a artistic critique, but actually actively be a part of it and try to shape it from the beginning because it's an amazing opportunity to think how we can do it from the beginning and if we can do it differently. And by differently, I mean in other ways than we already do fashion uh, as it is. So imagine that we wouldn't have to uh, decarbonize, decolonize and yeah do all those things if we already from the scratch start thinking how we do it and uh, where do we apply it. So what do you think is the most sustainable benefit of digital fashion? Uh, what's the most sustainable? I I think it can be, I think it can go in, I usually map out like four areas where where it can support uh, sustainable, uh, sustainable innovation. So I would say it's... Uh, Definitely something that is already very much used and applied. Uh, so this is traceability and authentication. I think this is uh, one area. Second is uh, diversifying kind of the offer of products that companies can have. So you can now start also offering different uh, products with different carbon footprints. So definitely that uh, changes the impact of the company and the offering it has. Um, then I think we'll also see a lot of um, made-to-order uh, bespoke production and digital fashion can very much support that. And the one that's definitely, I don't know, maybe I don't, I don't have, I don't have stats for that, but probably now the, we could say that this is the number one most sustainable one, virtual sampling. So not wasting uh, resources and time on traditional kind of sampling in fashion industry, but creating virtual samples with help of uh, 3D designers using Clove 3D or Marvelous. Yeah, it's crazy how many different elements of digital fashion there are, but I also want you to explain now your journey with the dematerialized. So can you explain for those who don't know what the dematerialized is and how did you get your job there and how does sustainability relate to your role, if in any way? So I joined uh, Dematerialize as a head of impact. 
what we before called digital sustainability and social impact, but it's very long title. So I'm head of impact at Dematerialize. Uh, Dematerialize is a, uh, I would say, yeah, it's a marketplace. Some people can think of e-commerce platform uh, exchangeably where you can go and buy fashion NFTs. And uh, it's been running on for, I think, I don't know. I was there for a year, so definitely much longer than that. Uh, and it's one of the leading companies, I would say, in fashion and tech and thinking how to create NFTs and, and what they are and what do they do and how, how can also brands uh, yeah, be a part of this transition towards Web3. Uh, and my role as a head of impact, I'm responsible for uh, building and implementing a uh, sustainability and impact strategy. So thinking what can we do uh, to be basically the best we can uh, and focusing equally on environmental sustainability. So, uh, you know, going on the path of decarbonization uh, as well as social sustainability, thinking how we can, how can our product be very transparent, but also, uh, yeah, cultural sustainability. So what kind of, and again, yeah, how I got this job is quite, it's it's quite interesting. It's through uh, research and for education for my PhD. I interview uh, Marjorie Hernandez, our co-founder, and then we met many times. We talked a lot about about fashion, about tech, and yeah. And then the opportunity came, and um, Marjorie invited me to to join the materialize. That's amazing, and yeah. obviously, you also have your own brand or own platform unfolding strategies at what point did you begin this was this during dematerialized or oh no after? no no this is way this is way before so unfolding strategies is basically me stepping out from a role of educator only in the walls of university and design schools and it's saying to the industry you have a lot of to learn and we can help you with that so it has a very strong educational component uh but it's grown to be more than that. So Unfolding Strategies is, was founded at the beginning of the pandemic. It's been, I think, around two years now. And our offering is twofold. On one hand, we um, support uh, different companies, but also institutions, but mainly fashion industry, and work a little bit also with tech clients uh, on consulting their projects. And we specialize in uh, everything that has to do with metaverse and ethics, digital sustainability, uh, diversity, and digital fashion. These are like the topics uh, that we support. And we also educate teams on what is metaverse, uh, what is Web3, what does it mean, and how this will you know, change and transform their work. So this is what we do. Uh, and we also offer some creative services and we did product development, uh, digital fashion brand development. But then the second part of what we do at Unfolding Strategies is an education lab. So we say that we're a consultancy and edulab. And the edulab part is where we do the podcasts, we launch reports, and we are working now on offering webinars and online courses uh, so everybody can have access to it, not only companies, brands, uh, yeah, to kind of make it more open and accessible. Mm. What kind of demand is there for this kind of education, specifically on digital fashion? What is the demand? Well, I think uh, I think we will see it grow because when someone asked me that question, I said, imagine that H&M is selling NFTs 
and everybody on the shop floor needs to be able to explain what it is. So I think we really have, uh, we don't have really an opportunity to reject those things. I think that digital, uh, tra digital transformation is here and is just proceeding. So as much everybody will have to get on board, they will also need to understand what it is. And what I can see from my from my work with clients defaulting, or even at some calls with brands and dematerialize, there is still a lot of questions that are not answered. And in order to be able to navigate the space and to do interesting things, um, you know, beyond like one of marketing activations, uh, there's a lot of knowledge gaps and they need to be filled in. So I think, yeah, I think there's, I think there's a significant uh, kind of uh, desire to have that, but I think it will only grow. Yeah. And that was going to be my other question at the dematerialized and with unfolding strategies, what's the biggest challenge you faced with when you're talking about digital fashion or trying to educate people who maybe aren't aware about this? What is the biggest challenge? What is the biggest challenge? Um, I, I, I don't know, really. I haven't thought of it. That's a great question. I think the, I think the, to kind of how to show that there is an opportunity to, in a way, buy one, get one free, so that those conversations about digitization and those conversations about sustainability, they shouldn't be happening in separate uh, Zoom calls or separate rooms, uh, that they should be brought together. And this is something that working, for example, with creative agencies, they're surprised that, um, that the call that they thought is going to be about uh, sustainability it's also about innovation and digitization. So I think bringing those two together and showing that, as my favorite philosopher, uh, Rosie Braidotti says, that climate crisis happens on Wednesday and digital innovation on Friday, that it's kind of two simultaneous forces that we should be discussing and tackling at the same time. Um, this is, I think, something that is a great opportunity and uh, we really need to look into it farther because only now certain, I think certain people are thinking like, hmm, how can we link those two? So yeah, this is for me the most exciting, but also challenging part. Yeah. It's interesting what you said. And it also, I think it's relevant for anyone in this space is there's so much uncertainty and there's so many different elements of digital fashion and so much confusion still. You obviously work for you have a lot of different projects going on. What's like a typical day in your life managing, working for the Dematerialized and doing all this, but still enjoying what you do? How do you manage all of this? How do I manage all of this work? Working before in, in uh, art world and fashion uh, gave me a very amazing opportunity to be able to you know work on six projects at the same time. So I see it in a very similar way. There are uh, different projects that I'm leading at DMAT. One of them is a real transparency standard. Other one is uh, launching our website with all the information about impact that we're going to do hopefully soon. Um, and then also supporting different teams with different things. So this is, I see it as different projects that I'm working on. And then with Unfolding, we have different clients and different ventures. So they kind of, you know, add to my uh, basically to my other project. So one of them is our podcast, Fashion Knowledge. One of them is writing a report about um, digitals. That's another one. So I see them as respectively different projects that I'm simultaneously working on. And it all basically contributes to my work life. Do you ever get negative responses to what you're doing? Because I know that some people really don't understand digital fashion and I do 
understand why people wouldn't like it in a sense, but do you ever get negative responses? Um, negative responses? I think I get often um, questions and, and I very often hear, I don't really understand what is that you do or um, is it okay that I don't know what all this blockchain thing is? So I think it's more of a question mark. Um, I even at the events when I started first attending like fashion revolution events um, as a public speaker talking about digital fashion, I was very much prepared for uh, negative uh, comments and feedback because of blockchain heavy energy consumption and as sometimes I was representing dematerialized which sells NFTs that are on blockchain, uh, it felt like it might be like that. But I think I think it's a I think it's a question of how we start this conversation. Uh, and how we go about it. I think there's a lot of misinformation or actually lack of knowledge. Um, so even the conversations about energy consumption and blockchain, this is just something that sometimes needs to be explained that yes, some of them consume a lot of energy, but then there are other blockchains that consume that much energy. And I think there is, and this year it was very helpful because there a lot of interesting research uh, came about uh, on those topics. Last year, it was much harder to have those conversations, but I think it's all about being informed. Um, I think if if you, for example, have people, I don't know, being negative about it, I think it also comes from the place where it's 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 always with new things like that. And and I think there's also fear and we're, we're a little bit scared of technology because we also know technology that can be used for no good. And we, we saw that in last year's very, very well. So if something new happens, there's always uh, fear. And when we don't understand it, I think we can be even more fearful of that. So I would have people at conference, like at the conference I did, like academic conference say to me, it will never replace the real fashion or digital fashion shows will never replace uh, the fashion week in New York. But nobody wants to replace anything. I think it's all about kind of you know, finding new alternatives, developing things, seeing where they can go, what they can do for us. Um, and basically the world evolving and technology and innovation progressing and thinking how it can happen. So I, I think there is a lot of fear, there's a lot of questions, but I very rarely, uh, I very rarely uh, get negative comments or feedback. But do you have a favorite element of digital fashion? Do you buy fashion NFTs yourself? I have a few fashion NFTs, but I wouldn't say I'm an avid collector. So I know some people that are very uh, into it. I think I'm a more of a of a person who observes and watches. I'm still a big fan of filters, though. I think filters are very excited, and, and I think they're very fun. So I like mm -hmm. that uh, element uh, to them. Uh, yeah, and how, how basically it proves that we do digital fashion, even if we don't know about, about it. Very often people say like they don't know what it is and they would never wear it. But then I say, did you wear that cabbage backend hat or, you know, some other kitten face filter? And they say, yeah, of course. And I'm like, well, so you did already. You have experienced it. You just don't even uh, think about it. So I think that also shows how uh, powerful and widespread it is becoming that we even not knowingly wear digital fashion. Yeah, no, I think that's so true. When you actually look at it, you see that it is in our lives more than you even realize. But I think we do have just enough time if you agreed to talk about body in Web3. So can you explain a bit more about how you bring in 
size inclusivity into unfolding strategies and explain exactly what this means to you. Yeah, I think we we had this uh, we had this uh, really cool project a couple of months ago. We were working with um, with uh, one DJ from Berlin, and she wanted her digital fashion brand to be slutty, to be sexy, uh, and to translate that for her community uh, because she curates parties. Um, she's a DJ. She has this very particular community that follows her. And how do we take it to the you know to the digital? Uh, realm and it was very funny because when we started thinking about Roblox and when we um, when we started showing her how those bodies look like and what kind of bodies carry those garments she was like oh I see you know and it's and there are some uh, and when I said it to uh, a friend of mine she said oh but there is one designer that is actually doing slutty on Roblox but then on the other hand there is also the regulations coming uh, from them internally and this is one of the things when I discussed that with one of the co-founders of DressX, she said, oh my God, but there's all those regulations. So what can you do with the body and how inclusive it is? And if you can even be slatty, however you interpret that, that's a, that's a big, uh, you know, big space for research. Um, yesterday I saw a report that came out from uh, Roblox and uh, Parsons um, from New York. And it was very exciting to see that inclusion was a big part of it. And they were saying that this is a very, very vital part uh, of basically doing things with your body and wearing fashion um, in uh, in Roblox. So yeah, I was very excited about it. And I think it's a very important conversation to have. And I'm looking forward to working on more projects in this area because I think we need to, we are really now establishing new relationship with our digital twins, with our avatars, with our new bodies. You know, there can be few of them. For people who are in gaming, that they've been doing that. They have this relationship already established. But now when it's go en masse, this is, this is quite interesting. What does it, what is it going to mean? Imagine that you have your digital twin and you have a particular relationship with it. And then suddenly, um, suddenly it disappears because the platform that owned your digital twin crashes, for example, or removes this, uh, you know, service for you. So what does it mean when your digital body disappears? Um, yeah, there are many, there are many, um, uh, yeah, it's so interesting. Something I've never heard before, but now you're saying it, it's, it seems like the natural next step to all of this, because it's obviously something that you can explore in the physical realm. So obviously people will want to be able to do the same in the digital. And it's interesting you say about the regulations, even though it does make sense, but it'll be interesting to see how that's combated. So I think it's really cool that you're exploring this as well. It's it's really, I really recommend to everyone who's interested in the topic to see like what, you know, what are the, for example, tips for designers, how to design for the central land and how the body is framed there. How is body framed, uh, you know, at Roblox? It's very interesting because those bodies, they have to be somehow regulated and prescribed. And especially if we want to make them inclusive and different and build upon them somehow and give this freedom that also needs to be framed in a certain way. So it's a very exciting, uh, very difficult and very exciting task. I, I think the, some of the people doing amazing job in this space is Institute of Digital Fashion. They created with that 3D a non-binary avatar. Uh, I think we'll see more and more uh, progression in that in that space. and. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very excited about it. And that's why we also decided one of our first reports with unfolding strategies to be about body in Web3 and what does it even mean to have a body in Web3. 
Who does it belong? Yeah. So cool. So cool. And it's so, um, it's such a good point you mentioned that anyone designing for Web3 or creating virtual environments for Web3 should consider this. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting topic. I wish we had more time to continue the conversation, but unfortunately we don't. So can you finish by explaining what you believe the future of fashion will be? I believe that the future of fashion will be digital. So I think we will drop the conversation about digital only or, you know, physical textile only garments. I think we will see a lot of proliferation between those two spaces as we are doing now, because everything we do is in a way blended, expanded, mediated by screen. So I will see more of, we'll see more of that. And I think the next step that will be interesting is kind of how we go beyond the screen when we're not limited only by our smartphones and our computers and things kind of, you know, get this extra layer and we get to uh, experience things differently. Mm. I love the idea of an extra layer. Oh, and but, um, that make it sustainable and <laughs> remember about the impact and make it fair and, uh, yeah, and regenerative. That, that definitely would be also great. Yeah. Okay, well, where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, uh, you can always check out and subscribe to our monthly review newsletter on unfoldingstrategies.com. Uh, and uh, please listen to our podcast. It's called Fashion Knowledge. And you can also visit my website. It's theatamilchak.net, uh, where I try to post links uh, and recent news about my talks. Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much.